Let's start with uh, silent prayer, as we always do, and it's also an opportunity to confess any sins that we haven't uh, confessed already. Hopefully we don't wait until the uh, Bible study, uh, two minutes before Bible study, to, to confess our sins, and hopefully we keep short accounts. But uh, if you need it, I'll, uh, I'll give you a moment before we pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in peace. We appreciate this luxury that you have given us that not all of our brothers and sisters have around the world. We ask that you help us not take it for granted, but instead lap up your word as if it is the last evening that we'll ever hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're in a study of 1 Samuel and last time we saw 1 Samuel chapter 21. And uh, just to kind of give you some, some uh, just by way of reminder of where, where we are and, and what we've seen, is uh, young David is on the run, and uh, King Saul is pursuing him. King Saul wants to kill him, not because David has done anything wrong, but because David has done everything right, and David's been obeying the Lord, and so the Lord is elevating David because the Lord has selected David to be the next king. Therefore, David is a threat to Saul, and Saul is trying to kill him. Last time, we saw that David went to the priests at Nob for help, and the high priest Ahimelech approached David. David comes up, and the, and the high priest comes, comes out, and he approaches David with great fear and anxiety, is what's described there at the beginning of chapter 21. And the high priest, Ahimelech, correctly sensed that something was amiss because young David was by himself. That's very, very strange, very weird, because David was part of the royal family. He, you almost can think of him as a prince, a prince by marriage, because he married the daughter of King Saul, and he's also a very high military official. Normally, someone like that, a VIP, would have an entourage, but David shows up solo, and so the high priest, in effect, says, what's wrong? What's the issue here? And David assures the high priest that everything is all good. And so here, David does not do everything all right. He had been doing everything all right correctly, honorably, before, but now in chapter 21, by way of review, he begins to lie. Actually, you, 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 there was some deception even before that in chapter 20, but here you see deception that will cost people their lives. David says to the high priest, to Ahimelech, I'm on a secret mission from the king. I'm a secret agent. That's why nobody's with me. That's why I'm here all by myself. It's all good. You don't need to get nervous, high priest. I'm on a secret mission from the king. And by the way, that's, that, that's why I don't, ha I don't have anything with me. I, I, I don't have any provisions. I need food and I need a weapon. And so the high priest sh should have automatically, ding, 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 wait a we got a soldier of soldiers here without his weapon, without any weapon, no spear, no sword, no dagger, no nothing. And so David assures the high priest that it's all good and says to the high priest, I need food and I need a weapon. The high priest accommodates him, believes him, apparently, and gives provisions to David. Number one, he gave him the showbread from the holy place in the temple. 
Remember the show bread would be put out there on display. There were 12 loaves on display in the, in the holy place, display bef- on display before the Lord, not, not before the people, because the people didn't go into the holy place. The priest would. And then they would replace the bread on the Sabbath. So once a week they would replace the, the bread. And the old bread is what is at issue here. The old bread is, is what's being addressed in chapter 21. And that would normally be consumed by the priests, but David is in need and his men. He does have men. They're just not there. They're at another place. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 21. And so the priest gives him that bread, and he gives him the sword of Goliath, which had been kept there in the tabernacle at Nob. At this point, the tabernacle is at Nob. Then David, with these provisions from Ahimelech, flees to the Philistine city of Gath, which is ruled by the Philistine king Achish. He probably thought, I'm safe here. There's no way Saul is going to be looking for me here among the arch enemies of Israel, among the Philistines. The Philistines understandably recognize David because Gath is the city that that Goliath was from, you remember, and David shows up in the city of the giant that he killed that everybody knows about because he was their champion. And so David shows up there. He stands out like a, like a sore thumb. They recognize him. He becomes very afraid, David does, and so he feigns madness. The scene is described at the end of chapter 21 in verse 12. I'll read it just for your memory. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 21 reads like this. David took these words, the the, the words of the Philistines where they recognized him. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. David, being afraid, is something entirely new in the text. We haven't seen fear with David ever at all in in the entire book. David is the mighty giant killer, but here you see him afraid. It's the same Hebrew verb, yara, that is used of all the other people, all the other Israelites who were quaking in their sandals. When Goliath is there, they're all fearful, full of yara. When David comes up and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? Let me add him. But here you find the same yara described of, of David, and it is intense yara because it says that he greatly feared, really, David's fear is the theme of chapter 21. David's fear is the the theme of the entire chapter. Keep reading in verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have thought that this one to act a madman, that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Do I not have enough madmen? Do I need another madman? Shall this one come into my house? Close quote. That David would resort to acting like a foolish madman reveals the intensity of his fear. Fear is not always sinful. Fear is not always sinful, but when we let fear control us, then it becomes a sin. His fear drove him to lie to the high priest multiple times, 
and his lives would cost the high priest his life later in chapter 22, and the lives of 84 other priests that were under Ahimelech. His fear also caused him to act like a madman among the pagans. This is not how the anointed of God is to act. The anointed of God, the one who God has, whom God has said, you are the next king, this is not how he is to act as a foolish madman among the enemies of Israel, among the pagans. David may have been a man after the Lord's own heart. He was a man after the Lord's own heart. That's clear in the text, said over and over. He may have been a man after the Lord's own heart, but he was still a man. He was a man with a sin nature. He was a man living in a fallen, broken world. And so as a man, as a sinner like the rest of us, he gets his eyes on the situation instead of on God. God would use this 10-year period of adversity to train David, to train him to consistently trust the Lord, to train him for kingship, and to train him in humility. A good leader must be humble. A good leader must be a servant leader. Now, that phrase servant leader almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? I mean, an oxymoron where you take two words that don't fit together and you squish them together. Servant leader almost sounds like, like jumbo shrimp or freezer burn, or plastic silverware, or bittersweet, or devout atheist, right? I mean, those words don't seem to go together in, God, in, in the world's order of things, servant leader, but in God's paradigm, they work perfectly together. They're not an oxymoron at all, servant leader. That is God's design. Through his submission to God, David will learn the lesson well would learn the lesson of humility and learn the lesson of reliance on the Lord and learn the lesson of being a servant leader. And David's songs of worship reflect this. In 2 Samuel 23, David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. It is a very, very impressive description. This man of war, this man who slaughtered the enemies of Israel with his bare hands is called the sweet psalmist of Israel with those same hands of Warfare, he wrote roughly half of the Psalms in the Psalter, many of which are dedicated to this very period of adversity. In these Psalms, we find an older, wiser David who counsels and teaches the next generation, the next generation who he was writing to, and the generation after that, and the generation after that, odd infinitum, including the generation of believers in the year 2023. From time to time, I'm going to take us to these psalms. It may break up the flow of the book of Samuel that that, that we're kind of trucking along in, but I think these psalms are important for you to see because they give you the full flavor of young David. They give you the full flavor of not just young David, but older David. They give you the flavor of David's life and what David learned from this time of adversity. So with that in mind, please turn to Psalm 34. That's one of these psalms that David wrote later in life about this time of persecution. David wrote Psalm 34 reflecting on his escape from the Philistines at Gath. Psalm 34 begins with a superscript. The superscript is is the note that is at the beginning of the psalm that introduces the psalm. The superscript here 
says, A psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. It says Abimelech, not Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the high priest at the beginning of, in the first half of chapter 21. Abimelech, just one little, one little letter, big difference. Ahimelech is the high priest of God of Israel. Abimelech is a title for the Philistine kings. Kind of like Pharaoh was the title for the Egyptian kings or Caesar for the Roman emperors, let's call them. They hated the word Rex, so they didn't, the Romans didn't use the word king. Or the way the Germans used the word Kaiser, or the way the, the Russians used the word Tsar. Kaiser and Tsar are derived from the Latin Caesar. So you could almost say Abimelech Akish, King Akish, the way you would say Pharaoh Nico or Caesar Augustus. This is the, the, the reference, the name that we're seeing here in the superscript. Psalm 34 is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. And the one who played the foolish madman before the pagan Philistine king now shows himself as wise and humble in recognizing that it was God who delivered him. Look at verse 1. David says, I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul would, will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together. Exalt here is, is not exalt, U-L-T, it's A-L-T. A-L-T, exalt is elevate, to, to proclaim it, to elevate it to the sky. David encourages the, encourages the people to join in humble praise of God, to join with him to praise God. These two things go together. Humility and praise of God go hand in hand. The reason we don't praise God is because we are not humble. The reason we don't praise God is because we are prideful. And there is but one place, one person of praise in our heart, and that's us. Our heart is too full of our own pride. We're too busy praising ourselves than praising God. Because that's the way praise works. You can only praise God or praise something else. And always the king of the dunghill of idols is us. We, human beings, fallen, broken human beings. God's goodness demands not just private praise, but public praise. That's why David says, magnify and exalt the name of God, the awesome, great name of God. The children of God are to praise his name inside and outside the house of God. To those who know God and to those who don't know God. That is our responsibility, to praise his name to the unbeliever. I hope you praise God's name to your unbelieving friends and family. That is your responsibility. That's, that's what David tells us to do here at the beginning of the psalm. Verse 4, David says, I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. These are beautiful words. These are beautiful words. This is what God does if you will let him. He will deliver you from your fears. You say, I don't have any fears. You're a liar. You're a liar. Of course you have fears. We all have them. Now, over the years, they may morph and change. But that, that, that's just the reality of, of being a fallen, broken human being, living in a fallen, broken world. 
And these sweet words of promise you find here at the end of verse 4, and God, and, and, and the reference here is to Yahweh, and Yahweh delivered me from all my fears. David was delivered from the hand of the Philistine king. That's the context here. That's the fear that is, that is in reference here. The great fear of David before the king, as it is described at the end, in the end of, of chapter 21. David was delivered from the hand of the Philistine king, and he knew that his deliverance was an act of God. An act of God. Now, most people think of an act of God as something that is cringy. I mean, that, that, that's how lawyers use the phrase. Right? We put it, most contracts, big contracts, have a clause at the end called the force majeure clause. Force majeure is old French for superior strength. I had to look that up because because we just call it force majeure. I honestly didn't even, I'm not sure I even knew what force majeure meant, or at least where it came from. But the force majeure clause in contracts is always buried at the end, and the force majeure clause, lawyers just call it the force majeure clause. It means if there is some strength bigger than us, bigger than, than, than you and me in our contract, then you don't have to perform, and I don't have to perform. So there'll be a list of, of things, like, you know, the, 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 the title of the section will say force majeure, section 57 of the contract, force majeure, and then it'll have a long list. If there's a strike by the union, if there's a hurricane, if there's a war, if there's a terrorist strike, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of the last ones will be if there's an act of God. Because we think of an act of God because we've been trained by our culture, we've been trained by our community, by our unbelieving culture to think of an act of God not as something wonderful, but as something terrible, like a hurricane or like a tsunami. And the legal field is often an expression of the culture, and that's why lawyers use the phrase that way. Frankly, I stopped putting it in my contract. I stopped putting act of God in my contract because no one really knows what it means. And, and I'd rather just list in the contract things that are out, outside of our control and, and have kind of a generic statement and then individual things that are identified. The phrase act of God betrays our view of God. It reveals our view of God. As a culture, we hate God, so we do not think of him as a deliverer as David describes him here in verse 4, we think of him as an injurer, as a harmer. David, on the other hand, loves God. And he sees God for who he is, the one and only true deliverer. So in Psalm 34, verse 5, we read this. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. In this context, the poor man, it's not about money. It's not about gold coins or silver coins, which would be their, their commodity back then. This is about being unable. The poor man is the one who is unable to deliver himself from adversity. And so looking back now as an older man, David knows that it was God who rescued him from the Philistine king Abimelech. God delivered David not because David acted like a madman. God delivered David not because David did that, but despite David acting 
like the madman. David wants us to know, and he wants us to learn that God does not disappoint. God does not disappoint. He is the Savior, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, and God vindicates the humble, those who trust in His name. When we trust in God's name, we exalt God's name. You see that, right? When we rely on God, especially when you communicate it to others, if you're like Tony Evans says, you're, you're just the 007 Christian. I, no, I'm, I'm James Bond. I don't want anybody to know that I'm a Christian. If that's who you are, then, then you're not communicating your faith in God, which is to say you're not elevating His name. Because you elevate, you exalt His name, to use David's language, when you trust in Him, especially when you communicate that to others. Now, please, 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 don't say, don't tell someone, I, I, I trust in God, I have such great faith in God, and be a poser about that, and be a faker about that. It's better, better to keep your mouth shut and to say nothing. Faith in God elevates God's name. Reliance on God, trust in God, elevates the name of God, and so He blesses that. He blesses us trusting in Him. Right? The writer of Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. David is a military man. And so he uses a military metaphor, a military analogy, military imagery to make his point. In verse 7, he says, The angel of Yahweh, which surely is the pre-incarnate Christ. We have seen that before. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him. Around those who fear him. It's like our phrase, circling the wagons. Right? In the 1800s, this was Comanche territory where we are sitting and standing today. Comanche territory. So if you were crossing through this territory in a wagon trail and there were Comanche raiders, what would you do? You would circle the wagons and you would put the most vulnerable, the women and the children, you would put them in the middle. And the men, who were men, would be on the perimeter with their weapons, with their rifles, right? And the women and the children, the vulnerable, would be in the middle. And so you, you, you see the great beauty of David's words. David analogizes this sort of imagery for God. And he says God envelops the vulnerable, encircles them. And, and, and you, you see actually the, I'm, I'm going to bend words here for a minute, the body of God. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh except that God became a man. And so... He does have flesh, fully God, fully man. God, in the flesh, envelops us with his body because in his own body he bore our sins. To be specific, the son of David bore our sins. And so you see this beautiful imagery here that David is accustomed to from personal experience. He describes these things from personal experience. Keep reading in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek Yahweh shall not be in want of any good thing. Sometimes even the, the, the mighty king of the jungle, the, 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 the young lion, sometimes even the lion goes in starvation, looking for a prey. But here, David says, not those who trust in the Lord. 
David feared Saul and Abimelech, those two kings. He feared them so much that he let his circumstances take control of him. Looking back now, as an older man writing Psalm 34, he now recognizes that he should have feared God more than those human kings. It's not that the human kings were non-existent. I mean, God doesn't tell us to play mental tricks. No, I don't have that illness. I don't have cancer when I do. I don't have diabetes when I do. I don't have that heart condition when I do. No, there's not this threat out there when there really is. God doesn't tell us to, to play mental games and to deceive ourselves. I mean, there are dangers in the world. Can I get an amen? Right? There are dangers in the world that do create fear in us because we're fallen, broken sinners, and we are very weak. I mean, physically, we're weak in comparison to the, to the threats of the world. It's not that there are no dangers in the world. It's not that that doesn't create fear in us, if we're honest. It does. It's just that God is so much bigger. And so we are to trust God. It's not that we're to deceive ourselves, ourselves and say that those, those, the, the, the fearful things don't exist. It's okay to be fearful. It's just you're to trust God more than your fear. Or to use David's language, language, we're to fear God more than the things of the world. To fear God more than the things of the world. And fearing God means to approach God in awe and wonder. If you do that, then you recognize those other things that are real are infinitesimally smaller in comparison to the living God. David teaches that God provides for those who fear him. He provides not necessarily what we want, but always, always what we need. It may be what we want, but it might not be what we want. But it's always what we need. Keep reading in verse 11. Come, you children, David says. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. As a wise leader, David here counsels the next generation and us by extension. He says, the fear of God produces godly behavior, which God blesses by giving long life. I mean, this is pretty logical, right? If, if there is a person who is a child of God and who, who follows the Lord, who seeks his word, who seeks his ways and engages in godly behavior, and that is a rarity on the planet, that is a unique thing on the planet, well, it makes sense what David is saying here, that God is going to give that person long life because God seeks godly behavior in a world that is opposed to God. Now, this is not a guarantee. This is not an ironclad guarantee. It's very similar to many of the Proverbs, where in the book of Proverbs, many of the Proverbs are general principles, right? You, you, you can have a 25-year-old who is godly, and the Lord calls him home. This is not an ironclad guarantee that you're always going to live, and you're going to live to, the, to, to age 99. This is a general principle. It's very similar to... 
Many of the Proverbs in, in the book of Proverbs, like Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Not a guarantee, but as a general principle, that's true. Keep reading in verse 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. You see the contrast here between the humble and the arrogant. If I could paraphrase this, I would use James's words from James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God elevates the humble. He elevates the humble. This is the principle that David is repeating here. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. These are poetic words of deliverance for the one who trusts in God. And yet they're also prophetic words that David spoke, which apply to the son of David. The Apostle John in John 19 will quote these words, will cite these words when he explains that the Roman soldiers broke none of Jesus' bones. Though Jesus suffered greatly, he was delivered. He was delivered from the last enemy, from death. Keep reading in verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked. Evil is self-destructive, in other words. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David closes the psalm here in the same way he began it, in praising and celebrating God. Do you celebrate God? I mean, when you read this psalm, it's convicting. I'll speak for myself. I feel like I don't celebrate God the way David celebrates God. I mean, am I the only one? No, it's all of us. I'm convicted when I read this song. When I read David's words of exalting and praising and elevating the name of God, it convicts me because I don't do it like David does. David is a man after the Lord's own heart, a prayer that we should always pray that we would have that same sort of appetite for the Lord. He ends the psalm in the same way that he began it, by celebrating the name of God. At the end of Psalm 34, David celebrates God for two reasons. Number one, because God brings justice to the evil. And number two, because God redeems those who trust in him, who take refuge in him, to use David's words. David wrote this psalm to praise God for delivering him from the hand of the Philistine king Abimelech. He understood that God's deliverance is both physical and spiritual, both. Well, with that, we close out chapter 21 and the psalm that goes along with it, Psalm 34, and we begin chapter 22. Please turn in your Bibles to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. Verse 1 of that chapter reads like this. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. It's not just David who's in danger. It's his family who's in danger as well. So they, the, David's family also takes refuge with him. They go into hiding. And so if you 
want to see this from a visual standpoint, here's this map that is super busy, I recognize, but there's a lot going on on this map, but just look at the numbers here. The numbers are, as we saw last time, are the, the legs of David's fleeing from Saul. So it starts in Gibeah, Gibeah of Saul. Gibeah was, was, David's head, or was Saul's headquarters, it, the, the, the capital of Israel at this time. Remember, Saul was from Gibeah. Then David fled to Ramah, where Samuel was. Now in, or, uh, in, in chapter 21, he fled to Nob. He fled to Ramah at the end of chapter 20, and, and then he fled to, to, the, to the priests at Nob in uh, 21. And now in 22, he, excuse me, also in 21, he fled to, to Gath. This, that's, that's leg number three. And now in 22, he's fled here on leg number four to the, to the caves of Adullam. Then you have Bethlehem here, which is where David's from. That's where his family's from. So, so Beth, the, his family went west to Adullam to meet David, and David went east from Gath to Adullam. They all meet there in the caves. There, there are large caves there, large enough to accommodate David and his family, and in fact, many more than just that group. Keep reading in verse 2. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, gathered to David, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. So in addition to David and David's family, there's a ragtag army of about 400 men who were there in the caves with them. They were distressed in debt and discontented, the text says. And the reason they were those three things is because of Saul. Remember back in chapter 8, God had warned them about a king like King Saul, a king like all the other nations. They wanted a king like all the nations. God warned them about a king like that. Really, the phrase a king like the, like the other nations means a king who's not going to follow you, a king who's not going to follow the God of Israel, a king who's going to do the stuff of the other nations. He's going to be flashy. He's going to have a harem. He's going to have a powerful army. He's going to look big and impressive. Because you remember, in, in the law, God said, when you have your king, he is not to amass a, a harem of wives. He's not to amass a military, a big standing army. But the Israelites in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, they wanted a king like all the other nations which was, they didn't articulate it this way, but they were saying, we want a king who's not going to be that interested in God. That's why Samuel gets hopping mad at the Israelites because he understands what they're saying. Back in chapter 8, when they asked for a king like the nations, God said, are you sure? Are you sure? Because you're not going to like a king like that. Because a king like that, God told Samuel in chapter 8 to tell the people, a king like that is going to take and take and take. And God warned the people. He warned the people to not ask for a king like that. He said, a king like that is going to take your sons for his army. He's going to take your daughters for his household staff. He's going to take your productive lands for himself. He's going to take a tenth of your produce as taxes. He's going to take your young men and your livestock to work his land, and finally he will take your very freedom. He will make you his servants. But the nation ignored God. The nation ignored God's warning about the government that they wanted. And so they suffered the consequences. I feel like I've seen that movie somewhere before. 
Keep reading in verse 3. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. David's words reveal why we love David so much. David's words to the king of Moab reveal why we love David so much. Do you see the words? I mean, do you see the words of faith? David, bonk. I mean, just, he's trucking along, and then the fear, which is real. King Saul wants to kill him. Abimelech would have killed him, gladly killed him, would have put his head on a spike. I got the trophy of the mighty David. Real threats. And David got consumed with a fear. So he falls, and he lies to the high priest of God twice. And he, he, he acts like a, like, like, like a foolish madman before the king Abimelech. He falls, and then he gets right back up. This is why we love David. Because he sins, and then he recognizes, God, I did wrong. That, I, that was wrong. I trust you now. Because here you see these great words of trust from, from David to the king of Moab where he says, in effect, I know God's got a plan for my life. God has already caused me to be, he used Samuel to anoint me to be king. So I know I'm going to be king. Exactly how God does that, I don't know. But I know God's got a plan for my life. Exactly how he's going to move the pieces on the chessboard to make it happen, I don't know. Let's see. That's what he's saying with this language where he says, until I know what God will do for me. And notice David's obedience to God. His obedience to God's word. Because he follows the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and your father. He protects them both. He stations them. He, he puts them there in this safe place of Moab why would he go to Moab? Why not put them with the king of Edom or the king of Ammon or the king of any of these other neighboring countries? Why Moab? Anybody know the answer? Right, that's where his, his great-grandmama's from, Ruth, right? And so he puts Jesse, whose grandma, right? You have Boaz, and Ruth, Ruth is the Moabitess. They have a son, Obed. Obed has a son, Jesse. And Jesse has all these sons, the youngest of which is David. So for Jesse, he's going home to his cousins and his, you know, maybe they're second cousins, not, not first cousins, but second cousins once removed and to his, his great uncle, to the, the, the house of his great uncle and his great aunt and to family there in Moab, lucky for Jesse. Lucky for Jesse, right? Lucky for David. No, luck is a fiction. Luck does not exist. Luck is a pagan word. Luck is a word that the world uses to describe things that happen because they don't trust God, because they don't believe in God. There is no luck. Don't use the word luck because it doesn't exist. Luck reveals that we don't trust God. God is a God who is omniscient and sovereign, and he moved Ruth to go west because he caused the famine in Bethlehem that would take the, the family from, in the book of Ruth, east to the 
to, to, to the area of Moab so that they would meet Ruth, and then Ruth would make her way back west to the town of Bethlehem in Judah generations before. God moved to all these events so that the parents of David would be safe in Moab so they, they would be relatives. God is a God of extreme precision. He is a God of extreme precision, and nothing happens without his divine authorization. Keep reading in verse 4. Then he le- left them, David left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Here we see the sovereign God guiding and protecting David. We know from 2 Samuel 24 that Gad was David's seer. That's what it says in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, that Gad was David's seer. Is that not a fascinating word? A seer. It's another word for prophet. The, the, the name seer and prophet became interchangeable, and ultimately they started using the name prophet. But they were called seers because they would see the things of God, not by engaging in some sort of pagan worship like the Philistines or the Egyptians or any of the pagan peoples. They would see the things of God because God would reveal the things of God to the seer, to the prophet, and then it would be revealed to God's people. But here, God assigns a seer, a prophet, Gad, to David to instruct him where to stay, when to stay, when to leave, to, 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 to guide him, in effect, to be his travel guide, you might say. We know very little about the prophet Gad. We, will see, we see him here, and then he'll go quiet, or at least the text will go quiet with respect to Gad. Gad may have been super busy. It's just is not recorded in the text. We won't see him again until the very end of 2 Samuel. David left Moab for the forest of Hereth. We're not exactly sure where that forest was, other than to say it's in Judah. What I really want to focus on here is the word stronghold. It's the Hebrew word mitsuda, mitsuda, and it means fortress, stronghold. Sometimes it's translated fortress. Sometimes it's translated stronghold. Sometimes it has the meaning of a mountain stronghold or a mountain fortress. If you anglify the word, or you, if I could make up a word, if you Englishize it, if you Englishize this word, Mitsuda, you get the English word Masada. Masada. And the stronghold in this passage is probably not the Masada that we think of on the, on the western edge of the, the Dead Sea, kind of the southwestern edge of the Dead Sea, not, not right up to the, to the coast of the Dead Sea. It's probably not that Masada that, that the Romans laid siege to in AD 73 because. The prophet Gad is saying, leave the stronghold in Moab and go to Judah. So this is probably a stronghold in Moab. But that being said, during the 10-year persecution where Saul persecuted David, David stayed in many strongholds. We will see that as we, as we go through the book, in various strongholds. And it's certainly possible that one of those Masadas was the Masada that we think of 
The Masada in Judah that the Romans laid siege, siege to in AD 73 and actually took in AD 73 gives us a visual image of what the Hebrew word Matsuda means. This is a photo of Masada from the sky. It is, as you can see, a formidable, a, a, a formidable fortress. Yeah, if you don't mind turning the lights off, that'd be great. Uh, as you can see, it's a, it's a formidable, formidable fortress. If it were a building, it would be over 140 stories tall. At 140 stories in, in comparison to the valleys that are, that are next to it. So it's very difficult to lay siege to. The, the Jewish Maccabees were the first to fortify this, this kind of protrusion of the earth, this, this cliff. They were the first to fortify it in the second century BC. And then Herod the Great built one of his palaces there, which you see the, the you can see the remains of that palace. Even today, you see the, the remains of the palace here, and, and there's the, the, the perimeter has a wall to it. And, and even down here, there are parts of Herod's palace. And Herod builds this beautiful, he, he had a number of palaces, very, very wealthy, very cruel king. And Herod had a, a palace here on, on the top of Masada. And then in the first century A.D., the Romans laid siege to Masada, and you can see their ramp. You, you can still see the ramp that they built. They, they didn't want to go up one of, the, one of the trails to get to the top. I mean, the, the, the legionnaires would have been killed pretty quickly. Just You could throw stones and things like that. So the, the, the Romans built this huge siege ramp over many months to get up to the, to the top of the, of the cliff there. This photo is looking south. Here's another picture looking east. That's the Dead Sea off in the distance. And there's the ramp. You see the ramp again. And in the foreground, you see one of the Roman encampments. The, the, the Romans had a number of camps. This is one of their camps that you, that you see here. And so as they laid siege to Masada, they had a number of camps around, and, and it had to be intimidating for the, for the Israelites in, 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 in the, the rebellion that the Jews uh, did against, against Rome. The, 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 the Romans didn't tolerate rebellion, and so the Roman general Titus, who was the son of uh, Vespasian, ultimately Titus becomes emperor, just like his father Vespasian becomes emperor. Titus comes in here with the 10th Roman legion, and the, the Israelites are holed up in this, in this fortress up here in AD 73. Um, AD 70, the, the, the Romans, including uh, Titus, destroyed Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is just a little bit further north here of Masada. But for an extended period of time, the, the, the Jews who are holed up in Masada, you know, they're, they're watching the Romans build their camps, knowing that the purpose of those camps is to to, to, to protect the Romans so that they can lay siege, build their siege ramp. I'm sure they conscripted many people to build a siege ramp and to ultimately pierce the wall of Masada. According to Josephus, when the 10th Roman legion finally did pierce the wall and make it up the ramp, they found over 900 Jewish men, women, and children who had all committed suicide 
rather than to have been taken captive by the Romans. For many years, the modern Israeli army would take their young recruits to the top of Masada, and that's where they would take their oath of enlistment. That's where they would take their oath to protect Israel, and they would cry out, Masada will never fall again. Masada will never fall again. The reality is that there is but one impenetrable Masada. There is but one Masada that will never fall. I don't know if that Masada is going to fall again. I don't know, if the, I don't know what's going to happen to that Masada. We, we know that in the tribulation there will be great destruction in and around that area. There's only one Metsuda, only one Masada that is impenetrable. Only one Masada that will never fall, and it's the Masada in whom David took refuge. David describes this Masada in Psalm 18. It's a Masada that he praises and exalts. The superscript of Psalm 18 says this, A Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And David said, Verse 1 of Psalm 18, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. How often do we pray in our prayer, I love you, God. I love you, God. That's how David begins this prayer. I love you, Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my masada and my mitsuda. And my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Remember, as we have studied before, we saw it at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel in Hannah's wonderful, beautiful prayer where she refers to the horn. The horn of an animal is the strength of an animal. So a bull with its horns, the horn is referred to as the strength. And so David is saying here that his Masada, Yahweh is his rock, his Masada, his deliverer, his God, in whom he takes refuge, his shield and the horn, the strength of his salvation, my stronghold. Verse 3, I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised. That's it. Who's worthy to be praised. God alone is our shield and our protector, and he alone is worthy. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your servant, David. We thank you for his adversity that he went through, that we may learn from it. We thank you, though we shudder at making a prayer like this, we thank you for the adversity that you give us, that we may learn from it as well, that you may shape us and mold us to love you, to exalt your name, to elevate your name, to praise your name, and to trust you.